Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Jennifer Kaltz, Director of Humboldt Baykeeper. The Eco News Report is brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, Eco News. Today, my guest is Matthew Marshall, Executive Director of Redwood Coast Energy Authority, here to talk about a proposed offshore wind energy project. Thanks for being on Eco News Report today. Thanks for having me. Matthew, why don't we start out talking about what is the Redwood Coast Energy Authority and who the people are that are involved in it? Yeah, so the the Redwood Coast Energy Authority is a local government joint powers agency. Our member governments are the County of Humboldt, all the incorporated cities in Humboldt County, and the Humboldt Bay Municipal Water District. So we have a governing board with a representative from each of those jurisdictions, from the Board of Supervisors, all the city councils. And we've been around since 2003, really focused on moving forward with sustainable energy programs for the community. Over the years, focus has been energy efficiency has been a big part of the the mission. And we've done a lot of work with PG&E as a partner on retrofit programs and rebate programs. And over time, that's grown. And we've done energy planning work. And one of the kind of core elements of that was the Repower Humboldt Strategic Plan, which working with the Humboldt State Shots Energy Research Center and PG&E and a lot of community stakeholders sort of outlined some strategies around getting the majority of our electricity here in Humboldt County from local renewable resources. And so that project involved both economic analysis as well as kind of community stakeholder engagement and technical analysis. And really that grew into the decision to launch a community choice energy program, which brings control of electricity procurement into local hands through our CEA as a joint powers agency. And so we launched that back in May. Now we have decision-making over where where our electricity is coming from. And really, that's a way for us to move forward with the goal of having our local sources of energy be local renewables. So is it fairly common for a joint powers authority focused on energy to exist in other regions of the state? Do all counties have energy authorities or no? Not all counties do, although it's becoming increasingly common as far as particularly around community choice energy programs. There's an increasing number. I think there's nine programs operating right now across the state. That includes Mendocino and Sonoma, Marin, you know, most of the Bay Area, and then Los Angeles County is launching a program this year. And so it's becoming the norm in the state just because there's a lot of interest in saying, hey, this is a way for us to move forward with local priorities and, and also provide lower rates to customers. And so there's some additional benefits there. Community choice aggregation is a California construct. It's not something that exists in other states? It exists in some other states. So Illinois, Ohio, and some back east, it's, it's not, you know, in every single state, but California actually wasn't the first. It's, it's more prevalent in some of those other states. And the law was passed a few years ago, but then it hasn't really started taking off here in California until 2010 was Marin launched the first program in California and then Sonoma followed. And then it's continued to grow from there. Why don't you give us a little bit of the state context as far as the state's goals for renewable energy production? The state goals for renewable energy production are ever increasing, I think is the bottom line, that the state's been moving towards going from a 3% renewable target to a 50% target, and now there's discussion of even going to 100% renewable target. And as I mentioned in the Repower Humble Plan, I think we were looking at those kinds of objectives here locally to say, hey, we want to shoot for that 100% target as well. And so that, you know, that really kind of sets the framework for exploring how do we move forward with renewable energy projects, and in particular... 
a component of that is needing a diverse portfolio of renewable resources. You can't just do 100% solar because the sun doesn't shine in the middle of the night and we need electricity then. And so there's some certain opportunities with storage and, and ways to spread solar out a little bit. But ultimately, there's already an issue with there's so much solar going onto the grid at certain days. There's actually sometimes like negative wholesale prices because there's too much solar and not enough customers to use it. And so they're actually basically encouraging curtailment and having to scale back. And so that's where we're interested in really looking at at a range of options, including wind energy is a good complement to solar, and particularly offshore wind is an untapped potential that really could complement solar well. So why don't you just give an overview of what is renewable energy? Like what is the definition and what types of energy qualify as renewable? Yeah, and there's kind of the state definition, and then there's kind of the more broad definition. The the broad definition would be any energy that is from renewable sources, as in non-fossil fuel sources, and generally people exclude nuclear power from that as well. In California, there's another tier in that large hydroelectric projects did not count as renewable energy towards the state targets. So if you're shooting for that 50% target, that doesn't include large hydroelectric. It includes small hydroelectric and then solar, wind, geothermal, biomass, or really kind of the, the other options that are in any widespread. You know, there's, there's little niches like landfill gas and things like that that also qualify. You mentioned that we have this repowering Humboldt plan, and are there some specific local goals in that as well as just finding renewable or sustainable energy sources? Yeah, there's kind of a couple components to it. There's the the technical piece of the project really looked at, can we meet our local needs with renewable sources that are from here in our community? And the answer to that was yes. It does take a portfolio of options. I think solar is part of it. We don't have the greatest solar resource in the state, obviously. We have uh, certainly on the biomass side, that's a, a significant local resource since we're the top timber producing, I think, county in the state. And so there's a lot of mill waste that rather than going to a landfill can be used to, to generate electricity. That's sort of an existing resource that's been around for a while. And then there's some small hydroelectric, but the biggest really untapped potential we have is on the wind side of things. And in particular, the offshore wind resource is very significant. We really have the best wind resource in the country when you look at our offshore wind potential. And, you know, the other aspect of the re- Power Humble project was looking not just at the technical piece of it, but also sort of the, the broader community benefits, community engagement, environmental benefits. And one of the things that emerged out of that project and has come up repeatedly whenever we've done community engagement or been working on planning, there's an interest in local control and local decision-making and really not having projects that are moving forward just because some big company came in and and wants to barrel through and make some money off of local resources. There's been a strong push for sort of a humble mentality of saying, hey, we want to be in the driver's seat. We want to have a say in how things develop. We want benefits to stay local as much as possible. We want to see local economic development benefits and not just have it be sort of a resource extraction activity. And so that's something that we've really been focused on when we're looking at projects of how can we keep dollars local in the community? How can we have it be something that we have a say in what happens in our community? Right. And so with this offshore wind proposal, it's in the early stages, but it's very different than a previous wind project that was proposed some years ago, the Bear River Wind Project, which ended up getting dropped. But that was really more the big company coming in and saying, we're going to do this project. And so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the genesis of this wind energy project that would be offshore using floating turbines and Uh, quite a ways offshore, 20 to 30 miles offshore. So give us a little background on what the, the latest developments have been. 
So the wind has always been there, and you can look at wind resource maps and say, oh, there's a, there's a great potential for offshore wind off the coast of, of Humboldt. And offshore wind as a technology is pretty prevalent in Europe. It's starting to really take hold on the East Coast now. And one of the challenges, though, of why it hasn't happened here or in a lot of other parts of California the water gets deep quickly here, and so your typical offshore wind farm is, is a fixed bottom foundation, so it's basically the same as an onshore wind turbine sitting on the, the ocean floor. And so our water depths get too deep here, and so you really need floating platform technology to be able to get the turbines far enough out where the wind resource is good and they're not right on the beach, basically. And that technology is really just starting to catch up and become ready for commercial deployment at scale. So there's been a number of pilots in Europe and Japan, and then the first sort of commercial scale project just went in in Scotland last year. And so the technology is caught up with where it needs to be to, to actually move this forward. As far as a local project, as you said, it's very much in the early stages. We're talking probably a five to seven year time frame. And in broad strokes, it's it's not going to be a huge project if, if we move something forward in the sense that there's grid constraints here. So even if you built a giant wind farm, there isn't the capacity on the transmission lines to get the power out of electricity. So what we're really focused on is aiming for something that is scaled to local needs. That might be like 10 to 15 turbines. And again, this would be pretty far out, which is where the wind is better. It also doesn't eliminate, but minimizes impacts or potential conflicts with fishing and, and reduces potential wildlife impacts. And so there's Obviously, a lot of studies and work that has to be done to get to the point where a project could move forward. But going 20 to 30 miles out is really where it would be most likely for something to happen. And, and that's, again, also minimizes visual impacts, which you know I think is another community potential concern. And so if you get 20 miles out, that's pretty far. Right. And we know from conversations with the commercial fishermen that it also would be less of an impact on either salmon fishermen or Dungeness crab fishermen because they fish closer to, to shore. Yeah, and there, there's some fishing out there, like trawling. And so, you know, it's not a, a zero overlap kind of situation, but probably the, the most sensitive would be the crab fishing, and this pushes it out past where mm -hmm. um, it's going to be overlapping where there's crab fishing. And so for those of us that love crab, that's an important factor. Yeah, and we have also had the PG&E Wave Connect project, which was a wave energy project proposal. And so, you know, that was also a learning process that had the plug pulled on it eventually, but a lot of lessons learned that we can, you know, incorporate into this proposal as it develops. But my understanding is that there's really not a lot of baseline data that far offshore as far as the critters like whales and other marine mammals, the seabirds like the black-footed albatross, and even the fish or what kind of commercial fisheries are being used out in the territorial waters. So a lot of studies will have to be done first. Is that right? So tell us a little bit about how the timeline of this whole thing might go. Yeah, there's, there's definitely going to be probably pretty much any study you could think of in the sense that if you go 20 miles out, it's in federal waters. So that goes through all the federal permitting process and everything. And then, you know, you're also going to have at least the, the cable and then the onshore elements of it are going to be in state waters and on state land. And so I think there's something like 50 some different agencies that have to, to go through the review process. And 
So there's definitely many years of studies ahead, so to speak. And as far as the timeline or how the how that process unfolds, the the federal leasing of the ocean is done by a, an entity called the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and so they manage the the offshore wind leasing process. And that's really what we're looking for as a next step is basically pursuing with some private partners that would be able to help move the project forward a lease application. Now, if you apply for a lease, that doesn't mean oh now you get to build the project. So that gives you sort of a general area to start the study process. And then there's a first phase where you basically apply to study that area. And so you have to put together a, a plan to basically say, this is the monitoring we want to do. This is how we, you know, we want to put a buoy out there. Whatever your approach is, you have to get that approved. And then you work through a lot of that environmental assessment, the site characterization. And then through that process, eventually narrow down on a, a specific location and a project design. And then that goes through your typical permitting process as a second phase of planning. And then ultimately, if it all makes sense and looks good towards towards development. And as you mentioned, it's, it's a challenging environment. You know, there isn't some Somebody hanging around with a pair of binoculars on any given day, <laughs> 20 miles out there. If there's, let's say, a, a bird gets hit by a blade, you know, that it's not like on land where you can just walk underneath it and find dead bird. It's like, okay, it's going into the ocean. How do you even monitor that? And so luckily we're, we're not the first to do this. And there's a lot of work being done, both, like I said, on the East Coast and in Europe and in Asia. And so there's a whole field of trying to figure out how to best monitor and using, you know, infrared cameras and different technologies to be able to know what species are, are out there. What are the impacts to you, know, both from an initial assessment and then an ongoing monitoring to know if there's issues. So it's it definitely is its own challenge. Just the environmental evaluation component of it is like a, a project in and of itself. Right, right. If you're just joining us, this is Jennifer Cult. You're listening to the Eco News and... I'm speaking with Matthew Marshall of Redwood Coast Energy Authority about a proposed offshore wind energy project. So you mentioned some local partners. Would that be like Humboldt State University, Shots Energy? Who? What are the local partners that you're going to be working with? So, so certainly the you know Shots Energy Research Center, and then on the private side, there's a need for technical expertise, you know, environmental consultants, the planning part of it, there's a need for a company that has an offshore floating platform technology that's viable and, and workable. And so that's a key part of a project being viable. And then there's obviously the development part of it and that, you know, we're talking about something that ultimately would cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And so somebody that's able to finance and, and, and be a partner in that. And so my board approved us issuing a, a request for qualifications, basically to say, hey, we see this as an opportunity for our community. We want to make sure that it's done in a way where it unfolds as the community wants it to happen. We're basically soliciting to the market or the, the sectors that are relevant any interest in, in being basically a, a partner in moving this project forward. And so that, that request for qualifications is open right now. Proposals or responses are due the end of February, and then that'll be going back to my board in March for a potential decision. And so we will see how that unfolds. But we're cautiously optimistic that we'll get some some good responses for companies that we want to work with. And so that'll help us kind of define, okay, what's the project team bringing those different capabilities into the team so we can move something forward. So it's my understanding that this would be the first time that a local government entity is applying for one of these leases. Is that right? Yeah, we're taking a little bit of a different take. And, you know, the folks at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, as well as at the state of California, are kind of intrigued by our process. And we've been coordinating with them on making sure that, for example, community outreach and stakeholder engagement are aligned with our local efforts, as well as what they want to do at the state level and at the federal level. And so that, you know, we're not having three different stakeholder meetings or, or whatever. 
offer. And, you know, I, I think at the state level, there's a lot of interest in Humble in that as the technology's gotten mature and the state's kind of looking to their longer term goals of saying, hey, where do we go next after solar and conventional wind and biomass and those existing resources that are, you know, well established, they started looking at offshore wind. And the kind of wrinkle or, or twist in the plot, so to speak, was this last year the the Navy did a compatibility assessment of offshore wind to see where it would potentially impact their sort of mission readiness for submarines, boats, airplanes, etc. And they had sort of red, yellow, green zones of where they felt it was incompatible, where it was compatible, where it was kind of borderline. And, and basically the only green area in the whole state is up here. And so a lot of folks were more looking down in the Central Coast region there had already been a project actually proposed for a lease down there. That's where there's there's good grid infrastructure, there's the customers, there's the load on the energy side. And so it was a logical place for people to be starting with the Navy kind of saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not so sure we want to see this anywhere. A lot of the developers and, and the state said, oh, hmm, Humboldt's the place that maybe a first project might happen due to that Navy perspective. And, you know, obviously we do have better wind than the rest of the state up here. So there's that. The grid constraint is really where a project up here, unless there's major upgrades to transmission down the road in future years, is going to have to be a, a pretty s- small project in the grand scheme of things. Well, and it seems like a good opportunity to test such a project if if the development of these projects has mostly been in shallower waters. You know, not only do we have deeper waters, but I'm guessing we have rougher seas than on the eastern U.S. coasts. Yeah, you know, and some of the, the projects in Europe, you know, North Sea and off of Scotland, they, they certainly have their share of bad weather, but, you know, it, it is a different environment. And then it's from an environmental standpoint, while there's a lot of offshore wind, you're dealing with different species and even just a little bit of different technology of a, a floating platform with, with anchor cables and having an array of those. There hasn't been exactly a project like that. And so maybe there's un- are whales going to be intrigued by it and go investigate it? Are they going to steer clear? Are they just going to go right on through and not pay attention to it? Those are unknowns for the most part. And so a smaller project is a more conservative approach than kind of going too big and then saying, oh, wait a minute, there was something we didn't quite anticipate mm-hmm. that's you know just unique to this particular technology or this particular approach. So Right. Well, you know, I know from teaching a class in the Environmental Science and Management Department, that's right writing an EIR on this project, that the plan would be to build the turbines on shore. So presumably at like the Redwood docks or somewhere at a dock where a ship can access the dock, bring in all this rather large equipment. Describe what these things would look like and what size of blades and all that. Yeah, so they're very large. And so they're, they're state-of-the-art offshore wind turbines are much bigger because there isn't the constraint of moving things around on roads and, and railroads. So if you're moving things around in the ocean, you can you can go pretty big. And so the turbine itself is similar to the, the big white kind of three-bladed conventional wind turbines you'd see, except they're getting into the range of it from the base to the top of the tip, like 600 feet tall or maybe even more than that. So, you know, that's like the old pulp mill smokestacks, 300 feet tall. So you can picture the tip of the blade <laughs> being twice that big. So pretty large. And, you know, then the, there's different options for the platform itself. Some of them are, are more of a platform. Some of them are more of kind of a, a long kind of spar buoy that's underneath the water that goes deeper. And then, you know, there's usually going to be like three anchor cables or something like that for whatever the, the platform itself is that's either partially below the surface or, or mostly below the surface. And then there's a big underwater buried electrical cord that goes the 20 miles back to shore and connects to the grid. Hmm. So it'll go through state waters. There's a marine protected area out there, so it'll have to presumably go around that. And then it will come on shore 
how, where? To be determined. And that's one of the, the next kind of study phases is where can it connect to the grid? And that'll also kind of determine ultimately how large a project is viable as far as what the grid can accommodate. And and so that's, I think, a, a next step of study that we're looking to work with PG&E and state agencies and the folks at the Shots Lab to kind of evaluate, okay, how would this work? Where would we connect it? And those kind of technical issues. So again, you know, we're pretty early in the process. It's kind of at the conceptual stage. The moving forward with sort of the lease component of it and also trying to identify partners gets us sort of that foundation where we say, okay, we know we actually have some degree of the possibility of moving a project forward so we can we can start investing money in, in those kinds of studies and, and have them be focused in the right location and, and for the right kind of project. What's really intriguing to me about this is that RCEA is going out and getting input from the community before the project is designed. You know, usually a project proponent plans out the project, unveils it, and then it's kind of too late to really make major modifications. And so you're going to be having some meetings in March. Yeah, we, we've been having, you know, a lot of, I guess you could say informal conversations and just trying to get people, you know, involved in like, for example, the fishing community or the environmental community not wanting the first time somebody hears about it to be on the front page of the newspaper and be like, oh, what is this? Where's it going? Is it going to be where I'm crab fishing? You know, and so trying to be thoughtful and, and really bring people in at the beginning of the process instead of after there's already a plan in place. And I think that just speaks to making sure that we're doing things in a way that are going to minimize impacts and maximize the benefits. And I know I always appreciate somebody saying, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Give me your input before we start doing it, rather than saying, here's my plan. Please send me a letter of support or protest for it. And <laughs> let's try to, to, to craft it in a way with that upfront input instead of on the back end. And so there's going to be quite a lot of more formal process as we move forward. But just initially, as we're trying to just get the word out so people know that this is going on, we're doing things like this radio program to let people know, hey, this is something we're looking at. We're interested in, in engaging the community. We're going to have a couple casual opportunities for folks to come and ask questions, hear more about this kind of what would the project look like? Where might it be? You know, again, it's all very conceptual at this stage, but getting people in the loop and, and answering questions of like, oh, it's not going to be five miles off the beach. It's going to be 20 to 30 miles is what we're really looking at. And so that impacts visual resources much less than if it was right on the coast. And, and so just being able to let people get a handle on this because it is it's, it's a new realm and it's a it's a new technology so that the first two of what will be many over the years opportunities for <laughs> folks to come in and learn a little bit more we're going to do kind of a, a happy hour informational displays and and chance to ask questions of, of folks that can provide some more info at the beginning of march so there'll be one on monday march 5th that will be at the plaza grill view room up in the jacoby storehouse so folks can come and you know have a snack and learn some more information and then there'll be a second one at the new social club out in Samoa, the airfield out there at the city of Eureka property, which if you haven't been out there, it's a pretty cool spot. And that's where we're going to be having the second one there on Tuesday, the 6th. And both of those will be sort of an open house from 4 to 7, where folks can just drop by anytime in that 4 to 7 p.m. window. And again, we'll have information and, and folks there to answer questions. And where else can people go to get more information? They can go to our website, which is redwoodenergy.org, or they can always just call our office, which is... 269-1700, and we're in Old Town Eureka, kind of right behind the, the Lost Coast Brewery. I mean, so people can stop in, and again, we're, we're happy to, to chat with folks and, and film in on you know where we're at and where we're looking to go and, and give them background information. And you can also go to the KHSU archive page and look up this show, and there will be all kinds of links and more information about the meetings coming up and that sort of thing, so you don't have to 
pull your car over on the highway or whatever. Stop whatever you're doing right now and write this down. Tell the listeners a little bit about the microgrid project at the Blue Lake Rancheria and the one that's being planned at the McKinleyville Airport. Yeah, so changing gears, a microgrid is basically what it sounds like. It's a little chunk of the electricity grid that can operate independently from the main grid if need be. And so the Blue Lake Rancheria at their facilities out there recently completed a microgrid project working with Humboldt State University as well as PG&E and other partners. And so for that project, they basically they installed a half a, a megawatt solar array. They've got a Tesla battery system. And basically, they operate the batteries in the solar for economic and environmental benefits under sort of normal operating conditions. But then if the larger grid goes down, they can basically like island their facility and and separate from the grid and switch to backup power, which they had generators before for backup power. But this is a more robust and also renewable option for backup where they can use the solar batteries as well as their existing backup generators to balance the load and, and meet their energy needs on site. So again, that provides the economic and environmental benefits of renewable generation combined with that sort of resiliency and ability to operate in kind of an emergency mode. And for them in particular, they can have it be uninterrupted so the power stays on. They don't even have a flicker, which has a benefit there. We're working with the county as well as the Shots Energy Research Center and PG&E to hopefully do a similar project at the Humboldt County Airport. And this would be a little bit different and there would be sort of a larger physical area with multiple customers, mainly the county and their airport facilities. They've got a number of facilities out there in different accounts, as well as the Coast Guard base. And so it would be a a little bit of a different setup. And I won't get into the technical details, but this would be about a two and a quarter megawatt solar array. So four and a half times or so the size of the one out in Blue Lake, as well as a, a similar sort of Tesla battery bank. And on a good day, it's just running and it's generating electricity, which we'll be putting into our power mix for our community choice energy program customers operating the battery to manage and balance you know, moving the solar around to shift to when the load is so that you know you're optimizing that but then it would have the capability if the power went out to go into an island mode and then that battery and solar array which would be quite large would it be able to power the airport as well as the coast guard for pretty extended period of time almost indefinitely you know if they shed a little bit of their loads turned off a few things it would probably be pretty much indefinitely that it could run off of that system in case of emergency obviously we want the coast guard to be able to do their thing and they're dependent on the weather capabilities and diagnostics from the airport if you want to land planes you need the runway light so being able to operate all that and again it would be adding redundancy they've got backup generators now but it would be another layer of of support for that it's really kind of about we want to do renewable energy we want to do storage to help integrate that renewable energy into the grid and if we co-locate that with a, a critical facility and add that microgrid component then it provides that energy security emergency response resiliency so we're waiting to hear about a a grant that would help fund that. And then we've got an application into the California Energy Commission with Humboldt State for $5 million, the project, and then our CEA's budget for it would be about $6 million. So, you know, your ratepayer dollars at work to provide that solar and battery capabilities for the, the Coast Guard and the airport. Well, it seems really smart. When I first heard about it, I just thought, wow, that's such a wise planning maneuver to have a critical facility like the airport be independent of the larger grid in case something goes terribly wrong, which it has in the past. 
several times, we know. So Someday there's going to be a big earthquake, you yeah. know, and, and we might be low on the list of getting things repaired up here and, and just ensuring that the airport can, can operate and then the Coast Guard can operate would be a definite benefit in that situation. So just for people who have no idea, like how many houses would be powered by 2.4 megawatts? Two and a quarter megawatts. You know, it's it's a small chunk of our overall load for reference. Our, our sort of peak county load is about 100 megawatts. So it's a couple percent when it would be going at full blast. So it's not a huge chunk, but it's a, it's a percentage of our load that would be met by that system. So a typical household system might be five or 10 kilowatts. So megawatts, a thousand watts. So, you know, this would be many, many household arrays. <laughs> okay. Should have framed the question differently, I guess. Okay. Well, anything else you want to say before we wrap up? You know, we're just excited for the opportunity here. It's something that we've talked about for a long time and of the planning phase. And so it's it's exciting to be looking at taking the next step to actually making this happen. And both the offshore wind as well as the microgrid potential and all these kinds of projects are really the reason why we launched the Community Choice Energy Program. I mean, a little bit of rate savings for customers is great, but the bigger benefit is having control over how we spend our energy dollars and, and being able to reinvest that in our community for projects like these. Yeah, I mean, as an environmental advocate, cautiously optimistic that if the right studies are done and the right stakeholder process and consultation with every different aspect that will be impacted, that it could be a project that we could be excited and proud about if if it's done right. So we've definitely had our share of big companies coming in and saying, oh, we want to build a liquid natural gas import facility and a power plant. And, you know, it's nice to at least have a project where you don't just say, no, <laughs> right off the bat. So this will be really interesting to get a lot more information about the critters out there too. So yeah, no, that'll definitely be, I think, a, a key next step is kind of like, okay, how are you even going to evaluate this and, and start to explore, you know, how to minimize impacts. And... Okay, well, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. This has been the Eco News Report. I'm Jennifer Colt with Humboldt Baykeeper, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Matthew Marshall of Redwood Coast Energy Authority. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU archives at khsu.org. And we're also podcasting. You can subscribe to the Econews Report on iTunes. The Econews Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again next week for the Econews Report. <laughs>